0: Hey, good morning. How are you guys? Good you didn't answer my question. You just said good morning, but that's okay. I'll let it slide. <laughs> um, no, um, I'm really excited that you guys are here this morning. I'm excited to have the opportunity to. Um, Preach this particular psalm that we're going to talk about. Um, This is not only my favorite psalm, it's actually my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. And so I'm really excited to share this um, with you guys. Um, If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Jenny Jones. I'm one of the pastors here at Real Hope. Um, And uh, we're just really happy that you're here and excited that you're here to worship with us this morning. Um, Let me ask you this Have you ever witnessed an injustice? Um, Or worse, maybe been the victim of an injustice. Uh, You know, injustice being something that maybe um, you're accused of that you didn't do or a gross over-exaggeration of of something like so much so that um, it wouldn't even really be considered the truth anymore. It definitely crossed the line into a lie. Or maybe even worse, you've been the victim of something that you didn't deserve. Um, And something that was completely out of your control. I would venture out to say that probably everybody in this room um, has probably fallen into one of those categories, if not all of those categories at some point in our life. I know I definitely have. I can think of various situations throughout my life that probably fit in each one of those um, categories. Um, And some of them, when I look back on them, they're almost comical um, now to look back on them. Right. Um, They weren't at the time. But some of them are also so painful and so hurtful when I think about them and I look back on them that, um, you know, I'm still wrestling with the effects of them and probably will for the rest of my life. Um, But one of the more comical times looking back again now, not at the time in which it was happening, um, in which I was definitely the victim of a gross misunderstanding was my senior year of high school. Um so in fact this was such a gross misunderstanding um, that I almost uh was on the verge of not being able to actually participate in my high school graduation like not being able I still would have graduated cuz I had credits and stuff but not being able to walk with the rest of my class um and so here here's what happened uh, this is a story that has to do with me uh, one of my friends named Vanessa one of my friends named George and our uh AP English 4 teacher Mr. Petros. And I did not change any of the names to protect the innocent because in this story, I'm the innocent and you guys already know my name. I just told you what it was. So these are real life people um, and this is a real life story of what actually happened. So my AP English teacher decided that um, instead of a final, he was going to assign a research paper the last month of our senior year of high school instead of a final, because he knew that most of us would exempt his final anyway. Um, And uh, so he assigns a research paper. Now, here's the deal. It's the last month of senior year. Senioritis is rampant. Every member of the 2002 class of Katy High School could honestly give a rip at this point. Um, We were done, right? And uh, there was apparently one person that did still care, and that was Mr. Petros. And so here was the assignment. You could write your research paper over whatever you wanted to, um, you got to pick the topic. The only requirement was this. You had to have at least 10 sources cited in your paper. That was it. That was the only requirement. So the day comes where we have to turn in our research paper. And this is what Mr. Petros did. He had his, he sat at his desk. He had all of us line up in front of his desk. And um, one by one, we went and we handed him our paper. And the only thing that he did was he flipped to the very last page, which is the bibliography, and he just counted sources. That's all he did. And so paper after paper is getting turned in. Remember, senioritis, right? It's a real thing. It's getting turned in, and he's counting six sources, five sources, eight sources. Well, he gets so upset by this situation that he looks up, and he literally just yells at the room, if I get one more paper that doesn't have ten sources, everybody's redoing this research paper. Here's something that you should know about me. I am a rule follower. I don't particularly like rules. I'm not sure anybody does, but I am a firm believer in the fact if there is a rule or there is a policy that you should abide by it and it should be enforced. So guess who had 10 sources in her paper? This girl. Guess who was not rewriting a research paper the last two weeks of senior of high school? Also this girl. Now, here's where George and Vanessa come into the story. We're standing in front of uh, Mr. Petros's desk. Vanessa's standing in front of me. George is standing behind me. And as soon as Mr. Petros makes the announcement that if he gets one more paper with less than 10 sources, everybody has to redo it, um, Vanessa just turns, so, you know, pretend you guys are me. Vanessa just turns, and she whispers, I'm sorry. Because the thing is, is she had actually already told both me and George, that she only had six sources on her paper. So George just kind of leaned forwards and he whispers, I'm going to hurt you if I have to redo this paper. <laughs> well, Mr. Petros is uh, looking down during while all this is happening. Vanessa and I don't think anything of George's comment because by this point in life, Vanessa, George, and I had been friends for about eight years, all through junior high, all through high school. George actually lived a few streets away from me, so he was in and out of our house, birthday parties, all that kind of stuff. Um, we talked in Mr. Petros's class about things that we did together over the weekend. We sat next to each other. We did group projects together. It was pretty clear that we were all very good friends. But anyway, Mr. Petros looks up after George says this and he says, Miss Day, Day is my maiden name, he says, Miss Day, Mr. Morris's office right now. Mr. Morris was our class principal. Here's the thing. Again, I'm a rule follower. Like, I had never been to the principal's office up until this point. I had never really broken a rule, at least intentionally, up until this point. Um, but because I am such a rule follower and I'm so incredibly nervous at this point of what's going on, I immediately just leave. I walk out of the classroom and Mr. Petros follows me, which looking back on the story now, I'm like, what did he do with all the other kids in this class? I don't know. But anyway, he left them. He follows me. The whole time that we're walking down the hall to Mr. Morris's office, I'm asking him over and over again, What did I do? Why are we going to Mr. Morris' office? And he just kept saying, we'll talk about it when we get there. We'll talk about it when we get there. We'll talk about it when I get there. Well, here's the funny thing is that I was also the class president. In fact, at graduation, I was supposed to do the welcome and kind of MC the event a little bit um, because I was uh, the student council president. So I walk into Mr. Morris's office, and he looks up. I get there first before Mr. Petros because I'm, I'm super nervous at this point. So I get there first, and um, Mr. Morris looks up at me, and he's like, were we supposed to have a graduation meeting? Because I've never been to the principal's office. And I was like, Uh, I know I'm like I don't know why I'm here and he could tell by the expression on my face that something was very wrong he was like okay so mr. Petros follows me in at that moment and mr. Petros just looks at mr. Morris and he says our class president here made a terroristic threat to another student I was like wait what wait what just happened And I was genuinely confused. Well, as Mr. Petros is kind of unfolding the story, I realized that because he was looking down and because George whispered, he looked up and he thought that I had said what George had said. And Because I was standing behind Vanessa, naturally I was the one that said it. If you don't know me that well, then you probably don't know that I am basically a pacifist. I hate violence. Um, I always am cheering for the underdog, like rooting for the bone roll and the marginalized. Like, never, and do I mean ever, have I been accused of a terroristic threat to anybody? But this thing kind of unwinds, right? And it gets so out of control that literally it takes the next week to sort it out. And the only thing that resolved it was Vanessa's parents coming up to the school and signing a document saying that they did not feel threatened in any way when Vanessa was in my presence. Now, listen, I'm not trying to make light of bullying. Like, good job, Katie High School, for, like, doing your due diligence. But my point being is that, obviously, that is an illustration of being involved in being the victim of something that is... A huge injustice, a gross misunderstanding. Now, I'm not naive enough to know that there are much bigger injustices that exist in our world than me getting accused of a terroristic threat to another student. There are huge injustices that exist in our world. But I wanted to tell you guys that story because I wanted to kind of paint a picture for you of what it feels like and what it looks like to be caught in the middle of something that you really shouldn't be involved in. It's completely out of your control that this thing is happening to you, because that is the position that King David is in when he writes this psalm that we're going to be looking at today. He finds himself the victim of a gross injustice, a gross misunderstanding, and he's trying to figure that out, and he's trying to reconcile what to do with that. And that's one of the reasons why I love the psalms. I love the psalms because on one hand, It very much is inspired by God to help teach us about God and about his character and about who he is. But on the other hand, the Psalms are also songs and poems. And I don't know about you guys, but I know for me there is something about music that helps me feel and reconcile emotions and feelings that I don't know that I would have the words to put To them, if music didn't exist. And so we have the Psalms that, yes, are the inspired Word of God. They teach us about God and His character, but on the other hand, because they are songs and because they are poems, they also teach us how we should feel about God and about His character. How we should feel about emotions that we're dealing with in our life, how we should think about them, and ultimately what we should do because of them as a result. Of them. And that's what I absolutely love about the psalm. And so, the psalm we're going to focus on today is actually going to instruct us in the emotion of anger, um, more specifically, uh, the desire for retaliation or revenge. So, you know, it's specifically telling us how we should feel about these, these feelings or maybe that we have of anger when something is horribly gone wrong. Or something horribly unjust has happened to us. And when I say horribly unjust, it can be things that we observe in the world, or it can be something that's personally happened to us. I mean, I'm talking about things like the abuse or the neglect of a child. um, Blatant racism. Maybe being the only person in your company or your department or your team that chooses integrity, and so because of it, you're passed over time and time again for a promotion maybe the betrayal of a marriage, religious persecution. These things, these evils that exist in our world that we have a hard time kind of wrapping our mind around. And so listen, I'm going to be honest with you. This is not a feel-good psalm, what we're going to look at this morning. But it's so needed um, because it helps us know how do we process in a healthy biblical way perhaps things that have been done to us that were terribly wrong. How do we think about them? How, ultimately, how do we how do we act on those things in a way that's glorifying to God? So we're going to be in Psalm 69 today. So if you brought your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If not, feel free to use one of the Bibles that are on the table. Um, Psalm 69 is actually on page 397 of the Bible that's on your table. Um, if you don't own a Bible um, or uh, maybe one that's even kind of in a translation that's easy for you to understand. um, We would love for you to take that Bible home. That's actually why we put them out on the table for you to reference them but also to take them home. Let that be a a gift to you today from us. Um, We would love for you to have that. So here's the thing you need to know about this psalm. Um, There is a group of psalms that are called imprecatory psalms. All right, I want us to say that word together. Imprecatory. One more time. Very good, imprecatory, right. So they're called imprecatory because they include imprecations against God's enemy. Or another way to phrase it or another word maybe for imprecations would be judgments against God's enemies. And these psalms can sometimes be a problem for Christians because, and you're going to see this when we read it in just a minute, when we read through it, we're reading some of these words or these judgments or even curses against God's enemy. Enemies, But in our mind, the whole time, we're like, wait, 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 didn't Jesus teach us, like, to love your enemies, to do good to those that hurt you or hate you, to bless those who curse you? And then didn't Jesus also pray on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing? So then, how does Psalm 69, which is one of the most extended and precatory Psalms, how do we reconcile all of that? How do we fit that together? So here's what I want us to do. We're going to read through the entire psalm one time through. As we're going through, I'm going to tell you some things to underline or to highlight. Um, There are highlighters, pins, and the baskets on your table. There's also uh, like a little sheet there for you to take message notes. Um, And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about some of those things, okay? So we're just going to read it one time through um, first. You guys are welcome to follow on the screen or in in your Bibles. So here we go. Uh, Psalm 69, we're going to start verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I seek in the Mari depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs. Of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. And I want you to underline the last part of verse four and then all of verse five. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Verse six, Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake and shame covers my face. I'm a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of drunkards. Underline all of verse 13 and 14 as we read it together. But I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the flood waters engulf me, or the depths swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love and your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All of my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. I put gall on my food and... They put gall on my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Verse 22. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Verse 27, charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not listed with the righteous. But as for me, afflicted and in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me. I will praise God's name in song and I will glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. Verse 33, and I want you to underline verse 33, highlight it. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him and the seas and all that move in them. Underline all of 35 and 36. The Lord will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell there. All right, so here's the situation. David, King David, the author of this psalm, he obviously feels very overwhelmed by his enemies. And, and they don't seem to be, just by how he's describing, they don't seem to be military enemies. They seem to be personal enemies. I mean, he literally talks about, like, family members that have turned against him, like, not recognized to his mother's children, which would be his siblings, right? So they're personal enemies. But we get the impression that they're heartless and they're vicious, And what they're doing to David. Um, But David also doesn't claim to be perfect, right? Like in verse 5, that's why I had you underline He admits that he's committed wrongs and that God knows it. But it doesn't seem as if the hostilities against David are in proportion to what's being done to him. The wrongs that are being done to him, all right? So in other words, David is being treated unjustly. And he pleads for God to rescue him. I mean, he, he, he asks for God to rescue him from this miserable situation. Right there in verse 14, he says, Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me from the deep waters. Then comes this section of verses. And you probably felt it. It was a pretty distinct shift. Verses 22 through 28. So if you're, if you're drawing in your Bible, like I hope you are, um, go ahead and put a box around those verses. All right? Because those are the imprecations that I was talking about earlier, or the judgments on God's enemy. All right? So these, this is what David is praying to God that would happen to these enemies. They're his enemies, but we also know that they're God's enemies because he talks about how these people are pursuing him because he has a zeal for God and for his house. And so here we have King David. He's not a perfect man. He doesn't claim to be. But he is righteous, and he's a man who loves God, and he trusts God, and he stands up for the vulnerable and for those who are suffering and the undeserved persecution that he's experiencing that he knows his enemies are also God's enemies. And in the middle of this whole thing, he devotes these seven verses, 22 through 28, on calling out to God very specifically on the punishment that he would like to see to these enemies. So then we're left with the question of, what do we do with that? Today, in 2019... What do we do with that? Like, when we read those words, like, how should we feel? So does that mean, like, every time someone cuts us off into traffic, we just start quoting these seven verses, like, yelling them out to them in the middle of, you know, Grand Parkway? Or does that mean, like, when our toddler throws themselves down in the grocery store, wailing around? Are we, like, crime upon crimes to you? No, which that is why things like ClickList was invented. So if you're not doing that, that's on you because there are resources available to you. But that's not what David is saying. That's not David's point, right? I don't think David is trying to basically give us another weapon in our arsenal to pull out and use against somebody when we feel like we've been wronged. That's not the point of what David is saying. But I do think that there are two things... That we can kind of pull out from this psalm. There's a lot of things we can glean from this psalm. But I think there's two specifically that we're going to talk about this morning. That we can pull out from this psalm that does affect our everyday life. And how we deal with some of these injustices that we've experienced. Now listen, here's the thing. I would really encourage you to take notes on this message, not just because I think it's particularly profound or anything, but because you're either in one of three camps. You're walking through dealing with some ramifications of injustices that you've experienced or something so recently has happened to you that you still remember what that feels like or you're going to because none of us are immune to things that we don't deserve happening to us. It's going to happen, and you need to know how to process that when it happens. And so here's the first thing. Here's the first thing that I think we can pull out of this psalm. It's this. It's that sometimes we are forced to restore what we did not steal. Sometimes we are forced to restore what we did not steal. Look at verse 4, specifically the last half, which is why I asked you to underline it earlier. Um, this is what it says. It says, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. That's what David says. Now, like I said earlier, this is my favorite uh, chapter in the book. And, and no, it's not just because there's seven verses in which David curses his enemies. That's not why this is my favorite chapter in the Bible. Um, but, but I've read this chapter probably no less than a 100 times in my life. And this particular verse, verse 4, that second half has never stuck out to me like it did this week when I was studying and writing this message. Or maybe the better way to phrase it is that the Holy Spirit has never kind of used it to hit me with a ton of bricks like he did this week when I was studying for this. And here's the thing. When we read this, to take it literally, I mean, David is literally talking about material possessions. Okay, so David is literally saying, there are things that were stolen, things, literally stuff, items that were stolen, that I am being accused of stealing, that I didn't steal, but I'm being held accountable and responsible for restoring them. So that's what David's talking about, right? But when we zoom out and we apply this to our life... I wonder how many people today walk around bearing the weight and the responsibility of being forced to restore something that was stolen from them and which they didn't steal. I think about um, kids that have been neglected or abused. Um, I think about uh, kids that were maybe born into um, poverty or the millions of children throughout our globe that have been enslaved and terrible things like sex trafficking and are still enslaved in that. And I think about them as adults, and I wonder if they walk around with the weight of feeling that they are forced to restore something that was stolen from them, that they did not steal. And I wonder... If we walk around sometimes and walk through situations feeling the same thing, like I was talking about earlier, excuse me, the example I was talking about earlier, of showing up to a job and working faithfully day in and day out and doing exactly what you were supposed to do, but because you weren't willing to maybe lie about numbers to make yourself or a company look better, because you're not willing to see people as profit, opportunity after opportunity comes and goes and you get passed over for it injustices that exist, situations that we're in that we feel that we are forced to restore something that we didn't steal. And here's the reality of it is that we live in a broken world with broken people. And each and every one of us at some point are going to come to a fork in the road in which we have to make a decision that we are going to go down a path or maybe stay on a path where we're okay with settling, with living with unhealthy relationships or unhealthy habits in our life that are a normal part of our everyday life, in which we're trying to live in our own strength, which we're desperately wishing we could heal from things that were stolen from us. And we struggle down that path, but we, we pick that path day in and day out. Or we can go with the second path, another path. And here's the thing, I'm not going to lie to you, this other path is not easy. It's a path of vulnerability, it's a path of temporary pain in exchange for permanent restoration. It's a path of allowing the Holy Spirit to untangle years of lies that have existed in the narrative of your mind that maybe you didn't even know existed. But it's a path that if you surrender to it, if you surrender to that path, And you don't have to know how to do it. And you don't have to know what to say. There's no secret formula to it. But if you surrender to that path, it is a path of health, restoration, joy. A path of the Holy Spirit being able to use you in a way you've never, ever experienced or seen before. And if I want us to pull anything from this psalm today... It's the fact that if we choose that path, we can be real with God. We can be real about the fact that it is incredibly unfair that we are left with the collateral damage of someone else's choices. And that that's just not fair. We can cry out to God and we can say, I can't do this anymore in my own strength. I can't restore things that were stolen from me in my own strength. I need you. And you can ask him to rescue you and you can trust that he will. He will. Because he's faithful. And I think one of the best examples of this is the cross. I mean, there is no greater example of someone restoring something that was stolen that they did not steal than Jesus dying on the cross. See, when sin entered this world, life was stolen and it was replaced with death. Freedom was stolen and it was replaced with shame and isolation. Communion with God was stolen, and there was a great barrier now put up between us and between God. But then God sent Jesus, his son, who willingly made the decision to go to the cross, to restore eternal life, to restore communion with God, to restore freedom from sin. And the reason he did that was for no other reason than just that he loves you. That's why he did it. Not because of anything you did or didn't do or can do or won't do or should do and don't do. Just because he loved you. There's no greater example than somebody coming and restoring something that was stolen that they didn't steal. But they did it just because they love you and they and he loves me. So I have actually spent a good part of this last year choosing the path of forced restoration every day, asking the Holy Spirit, also with the help of some really great professional counseling. Can't recommend it enough. To restore aspects of my life that I feel have been stolen from me. And here's the thing. The, there are days in which that journey is really, really hard. Um. There are days when I want to stop and I want to give up and I want to choose complacency over fighting because honestly it would just be easier for that day. But then I remember, because of the words of David in this psalm, I can be real with God. I can be honest with God through prayer in those days and in those moments and the fact that it's really unfair that I'm dealing with this and the fact that I'm really struggling with it. And then I can look to the example of what Christ did on the cross and I can remember verses where it says, you know, because Christ is not still here with us, but because we have the power of the Holy Spirit, that you and I can do greater things than even Jesus did himself on this earth. And so I can do this. I can, I can get through this day, and I can continue to fight, and I can continue to choose the path of forced restoration. Here's the second point. second point is this. Psalm 69 is a call to forgive not permission for personal revenge it's a call to forgive not permission for personal revenge here's the thing as much as maybe you or I um, we would love to be able to read this and interpret it as like this gives us permission to just lose our mind on someone that has hurt us or Kia car or whatever you're you know, particular liking of revenge is. That's not what this is. We cannot read these imprecations written by David as an encouragement or even as an incentive to curse our enemies. And, And here's how I know this. Read with me Romans 15, 3. You don't need to turn there. You can just follow on the screen with me. But this is what it says. This is the Apostle Paul. This is what he wrote. He said, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Does that sound familiar? We just read that. That's quoting Psalm 69. Paul's quoting Psalm 69 in Romans 15.3 as to encourage us to follow the example of Christ and deny ourselves rather than gratify our lust for revenge. Here's the deal. You might be thinking, yeah, but Jenny, there are some truly terrible people out there that are doing really evil things. So we we just ignore that and they just... They just get off the hook for that. They just continue on. Or or you might be thinking, yeah, Jenny, that's fantastic. That sounds great, like really nice and rainbows and unicorns and warm and fuzzy and all that. But like you don't know my story and you don't know how deeply I have been wounded. But here's Paul's point and here's David's point is that it's not that there's not going to be wrath or judgment or even punishment for those actions. It's just that... It's not your responsibility, or I'm my responsibility to execute that. That's not our job. That's not our role. The Bible is very clear about the fact that those things exist. The punishment and accountability for actions definitely exist. It's just that it's not our business to execute those. Read with me Romans 12, 19 through 21. It says this, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. Don't get caught up there, that's not the point. Let's keep reading. Last verse. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You don't give someone something to eat or drink because you're like, that'll heap the burning coals. Take that. That's not, that's not what Paul's saying here. That's why he ends it with do not overcome, do be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But here is something that we can take away from that, those little that those few verses right there is it's this, is that God's wrath is the only burning coals that can actually purify. Here's what I mean by that. If there is repentance, if there is a heart of repentance in somebody, God can actually use those burning coals of judgment as a purifying tool. But if there's not repentance, then God will use those as a punishing tool. But here's the bottom line that's God's decision to make, it's not ours. And until that day, we do follow the words of Jesus, of love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, pray for those that have hurt you. In this, Jesus says, you will be sons and daughters of the Most High. Now listen, that doesn't mean that it's your responsibility to fix somebody. There are definitely relationships and times in our life in which we need some distance between us and that person. It is not your responsibility to fix someone, but it is also not your responsibility to provide judgment or wrath or revenge either. Now listen, I know that this psalm, it's, it's heavy and it's intense, and there's a lot to really process. It's not, again, it's not a feel-good psalm like some of the other psalms um, that we read or that we're even going to study in this series. In fact, this is not a psalm that is frequently taught. I was actually trying to think the other day if I've ever heard a message over this psalm, and I personally have not because, honestly, it's one of those that would just be really much easier to just ignore because it's messy and it's raw. It's David being vulnerable, but it also teaches us so much about God's character in the process of it. And it's a great example for us of just how we can also be real with God, and dare I say, even messy and raw in what we tell God and how we're feeling about a certain situation. I know for me and for my life, it has taught me um, an incredibly healthy and biblical way to express some of these emotions that I know swirl around inside of me sometime while the entire time encouraging me to follow the example of Christ. So here's what I want to end our time with today. Um, I want to end our time by rereading this psalm to you. But um, in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to do this. I want you to um, bow your head and I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to just listen to the words. Especially in light of what we've been talking about. Kind of the lens in which we've, we've, we've been given to see this psalm and apply it to our life. And so I just want you to bow your head, to close your eyes. You can do that right now and just um, listen to the words of this psalm. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I seek in the Mari depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner in my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport. Of me, those who sit at the gate and mock me. I am the song of the drunkards, but I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire, do not let me sing. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me, or the depths swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love, in your great mercy, turn to me. "'Do not hide your face from your servant. "'Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. "'Come near and rescue me. "'Deliver me because of my foes. "'You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. "'All my enemies are before you. "'Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. "'And I looked for sympathy, but there was none, "'for comforters, but I found none. "'They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst.' May the table set before them become a snare. May it become a retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents, for they persecute those you wound and they talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. But as for me, afflicted and in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him and the seas and all that move in them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it. And those who love his name will dwell there.